Hello, and welcome to episode three of The Depth Charge with your host, Dr. Julian D. Michaels, psychologist of myth, dream, imagination, and human potentials. The inaugural two-part Christmas New Year's special felt to me like a success, and I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback on it. So today marks the continuation of what will now be a weekly half-hour segment of this podcast. I've also gotten a lot of feedback that people really like the mythic storytelling piece of what I do. So moving forward, I'm going to shift increasingly into that mode. For me, storytelling is not simply entertainment. I consider it an ancient way to communicate about deeper realities of life and the human condition. The mythic traditions are originally what you might call oral wisdom traditions connected with profound understandings and deep processes of human initiation. Unfortunately, what seems to happen is that some version of a fragment of these myths is recorded in written form, probably by a translator who doesn't really have the cultural learning to understand what is really being communicated. And this translation might then go through further translations and summarizations and annotations, edits, abridgments, and so forth, until we end up with these strange and usually quite dry little fables or online encyclopedia entries that most people, most of us today, call myths. But real myths are something much more alive than this. And they can only really be told by someone who has, in a way, seen the story for themselves. Now, if you have the opportunity to hear the kind of storytelling that I'm talking about, you'll find that it is not dry at all. It's full of humanity and feeling, and it's also a transmission of a kind of elder wisdom, which is to say, a knowing about things like how to live, how to love, how to grow up, what to look out for, and so on. These kind of learnings are what could be called participatory, and that means that they can't really be communicated in words, but rather are learned in the manner that an apprentice might watch a master to learn an art form. Now, myths, of course, use words. Storytelling uses words, but in this case, it's a special kind of words. A mythopoetic bridge that is certainly not pure abstract language, but rather becomes something almost like a painting or a song. Today's story is the beginning of what is called the myth of Zagreus. This story was told in ancient Greece and was held as particularly sacred by a community of mystic practitioners who were called the Orphics, as in the students of Orpheus. Orpheus was a legendary musician, poet, and shaman. And the Orphics believed that the myth of Zagreus, the story today, held the keys to understanding the human condition, the state of history, and a path toward 
personal and collective awakening, liberation, spiritually. The Orphics believed that this kind of awakening was possible for the individual and that this liberation was ultimately the destiny of humankind. And that such liberation would furthermore break the cycle of the soul's reincarnation. They believed that we were reincarnating life after life and that this liberation guided in this story was the end of that cycle. Now anyone who has taken a look at the Eastern traditions will find this whole idea extremely familiar. Most people don't know that a kind of yogic liberation like this is to be found here and in other places throughout the roots of Western civilization, as well as in the Eastern traditions. But there you have it. It will actually take two or three episodes here to completely tell the myth of Zagreus. And we will do that in the next couple episodes of this podcast. So today's part doesn't actually include the character of Zagreus himself. And to clear up any confusion about that, let's begin by discussing the dramatis personae of the story. So to begin with, the title character is Zagreus, who won't appear until next week's episode, but who is he? Who is Zagreus? These days, when we think of the gods of Greece, most of us think of the gods of Mount Olympus. We have the poet Homer to thank for that, partly, but uh, also many other historians and philosophers of classical Greece who wrote about the gods. But this whole, this whole idea, this whole focus on the Olympians gives us a fairly skewed sense of what Greek myth and culture and storytelling was. The thing to understand about ancient Greece is that it was really what you might call a double culture. There was one cultural layer on top of another, and the gods of Olympus belonged to this newer layer which had been imposed by a class of invading warrior clans who then became the rulers and aristocrats of the Greek city-states. So it was during this conquest and the resulting cultural fusion that Zeus, for example, became known as the king of the gods. But the older culture, one might say the indigenous culture of Greece, never went away. As in many other situations of conquest and colonization, the original culture remained predominant for most of the Greek communities, especially outside of the cities. The thing is, these country people were mostly not very literate. Their culture was mostly oral, and being relatively poor, they did not tend to commission works of art or sculptures that archaeologists could later dig up. So as a result, it was the Olympians, who were the gods of the warrior ruler class, who had descended from those original conquering outsiders, who came to be better represented in the city-states, and ultimately also better represented in the historical record. The older gods, the indigenous gods, you might say, who remained dominant in the oral tradition of the countryside, did not tend to be warriors and conquerors. 
but were rather the gods of farmers and ranchers and midwives and weavers and so on. So one finds in older fragments that the highest of all gods or the chiefs of the gods are not listed as Zeus or as any other kind of warrior king or anything like that, but rather they are listed as a named pair of fertility deities, namely Gaia and Zagreus. So who are these? Gaia, of course, is Mother Earth. Though the original Mother Earth should probably rather be called perhaps something like the Earth Mother, because there is no association here of a globe floating in space. They didn't have that idea. But rather, she is someone who is very close to the ground, to the soil itself, and to the soil's moist and life-giving kind of energy and powers. In ancient Greece, this goddess was often called Demeter, or as in our story today, Deo, which is based on the same root word of day, referring to the soil. Uh, day means the soil or the fertility of the earth. So this earth mother, Deo, who we find described as, as one of the two most important gods of the older tradition as Gaia, she's also one of the main characters in today's story. And what about Zagreus, who is mentioned alongside her as the highest of all gods? Well, this has confused some scholars because Zagreus isn't a name that comes up very often in the Greek record. We only find it in a handful of surviving places. Probably this is partly because Zagreus was primarily a figure in that indigenous, mostly oral lineage, as I've described. However, certain statements in that lineage, uh, in, in the fragments we have, do help us to understand something about who Zagreus was. For we find him identified with both the gods Dionysus and Hades, who were much more major figures. For example, one of the names of Zagreus was Zagreus Chthonius, which means Zagreus of the underworld. And some of the Greeks said he was an aspect of Hades, who was the ruler of the underworld. Others said that he represented the oldest form of Dionysus, who was the Greek god of ecstasy and mysticism and wilderness. Well, Hades and Dionysus are normally seen as two very different gods. One, of course, is the serious god of the underworld. The other is the exuberant and wild god of intoxication and dance and so on, theater. So which one is Zagreus supposed to be? This is something of a riddle until we learn that it was an open secret of the Greek mysteries that Dionysus and Hades were actually considered two faces of the same god. As the mystics put it, Dionysus is Hades. So this double identification of Zagreus turns out not to come from confusion after all, but rather is a sort of hint about a secret union between the god of life, Dionysus, and the god of death, Hades. So here we have a fertile earth mother and a wild god of life and death, and they are listed together as the two most important deities of the earlier indigenous Greek tradition. And these are the characters 
who we find really at the heart of the myth of Zagreus. But today's episode, the beginning of the myth, is really all about the goddesses, about the aforementioned Earth Mother, about her very fertile young daughter, and about the events of that daughter's coming of age. So relax and tune in, and may this myth carry us across thousands of miles and thousands of years into the hearts of our ancestors. The tale of Zagreus begins not with Zagreus. It begins with the mother and the daughter. The mother is Deo, which means the earth. The daughter is Kor, which means the daughter. The mystics teach that in the far view, this mother and daughter are really one and the same, divided only by time. The daughter is the mother's future. While Deo holds the Earth's present, Kor holds the life that is yet to come. Now male gods are always wanting to either woo or conquer the future of the Earth. So the maiden Kor is very much desired, for her radiance is the luminous promise of the future's possibility. The thing is, this is a great deal of power for the body of an adolescent girl, even a goddess, to hold. She has only just become a woman, and already all the gods and all the kings want to claim her and take the power she carries. So our story begins with a maiden in tears. She is weeping with the weight of so much of the world's desire and so much responsibility. She weeps against her mother's breast, for her mother is the only one who can really understand, having been there herself before. It is only time that stands between the two. So Deo's tears, the mother's tears, mingle with her daughter's, joining into a very old river that is streaming from the past into an uncertain future. And it is in fear about this future, the same fear that she remembers carried by her mother before her, that Deo decides that she needs to seek out a prophecy to prepare for what, or more specifically for who, might be coming for her daughter, who is, after all, her only child. Deo goes to find an old sage named Astraos, who has spent lifetimes watching the heavens and who is thus said to be able to read in the patterns of the stars the mere destiny of the earth and all its inhabitants. Astraeus warmly welcomes the distraught mother, extending a courtly generosity and a good-humored warmth that he has learned in many lifetimes spent on this earth. He serves up a feast of comforting and heavenly food and drink, and when the goddess finally entreats him to please read the destiny of her daughter, he holds nothing back. You are not wrong to be afraid, for all the kings and all the gods beholding your daughter suffer with the desire to hold her. And not all such men are kind or honorable. 
I see that before ever young Kor is married, a hungry wind will come for her, will awaken her own longing, and will plant in her a virile seed. There is no way to prevent this. But take heart, dear mother, and know that the fruit of that seed will grow not to be a curse, but will rather grow through time to be as the very ambrosia you are now sipping, a sweet wine that will bless and renew the people and the land. So do one's generation's failings become the salvation of another. Having said this, the tongue of prophecy slept once more in Estraos' mouth. Deo's heart was filled with the ambivalence of all mothers of all the worlds, for she was destined to have a grandchild who would be a blessing to the earth. Yet this child would be born out of wedlock. What would happen to her dear daughter, her dear daughter who was still so very young? And so Deo, seeking to protect Kor as much as she could, quickly packed up the sky chariot and drove them all across the horizon into a glen through which ran a clear river, pouring forth from a spring, welling up in a cave, deeply set in the rock of a wilderness mountain. And into that sacred wellspring cave, Deo brought her daughter. This is your home now, the mother said. It belongs only to you, so I must leave you here. But I leave you with these three things. First, my most trusted handmaiden, who will care for your needs so you never go hungry or cold. Second, this weaving loom, so you may master the craft of spinning. Learn it well. Third, these guards to the entrance of your cave, so that no one, who en no one may enter without your blessing. No one may enter without your blessing. To the left of the cave mouth, I place a dragon. To the right of the cave mouth, a dragon, so you will be safe. And Deo hoped this would be so. But recalling the prophecy, she wondered what could keep Kor safe from desire itself. Even so, she had given her daughter what she had to give, and knowing this, she imparted her final gift, the one never spoken aloud, the wisdom to leave the young woman to her destiny. Let's take a pause here for a little reflection and a little more history. The Greeks considered this relationship between Deo, the Earth Mother, and Kor, the Maiden, to be one of extraordinary cosmic importance. For thousands of years, this mother and daughter pair were the leading characters in a great drama that was played out in the rituals of the Mysteries of Eleusis, an annual event to which people traveled from all over Greece and from even further abroad. These rituals were the premier spiritual event of the year, and they played out across nine full days, attended and facilitated by a mix of both women and men. 
Many scholars today believe that mind-altering substances may also have played a role in these ceremonies. And indeed, participation was said to be life-changing. Once someone had been through Eleusis, it was said, they saw the truth and they lost their fear of death forever. Male gods, particularly that is different manifestations of Dionysus and Hades, also played major roles in the Eleusinian mysteries. But the spotlight was centered on this pair of goddesses, Persephone and Demeter, Kor and Deo, the mother and the daughter, who together held the fertility of the world. The mythic narrative of the mysteries was probably something very similar and probably in part based on the story that we are exploring here today. The themes included the ambiguous abduction or seduction of Kor, the maiden, and also the mother's pain in dealing with this transition into adulthood. According to certain lore, it was the separation and the mother's ensuing grief that caused winter to arrive, the season in which the crops dried up and the land passes through a cycle of death. Yet, in our story today, that is, in this more ancient myth of Zagreus, the mother, Deo, seems to show a deep understanding and ultimately acceptance of her daughter's destiny. She is not taken by surprise, and she also doesn't misinterpret an unwedded seduction as something inherently violent or coercive. It might not be the outcome that she planned for or wanted, but Mother Deo sees the weave of things and ultimately chooses to bless rather than fight against the pattern of the stars. So some questions for our reflection. How do you relate to predictions about the future? Are you attracted to prophecy, divination, or other kinds of predicting, foretelling? Do you ever think you just know things about what's happening or what's going to happen? When you have these kinds of predictions, do you try to stop or control the outcomes? What would it take in situations like these to borrow something of the goddess Deo's wisdom? Could you find the courage, as she did, to gracefully allow destiny to unfold, even when it comes to the people, the things that you cherish the most? Our story picks up again with the maiden core alone in the river cave on the cusp of her womanhood.
Kor's first days in that cave were incredibly lonely. She had never felt isolated like this before. Even when there had been no one else, she had always had her mother. While the silent handmaiden took care of her physical needs, while the dragons kept her safe, there was no one there with whom she could chat or laugh or cry. For the first time in her life, Kor felt truly alone. Yet there was the weaving loom. At first she avoided it altogether. It just sat there beside the river, looming. Yet there were no other toys, no distractions, and while the loom could not speak, she found when she finally picked up the shuttle and thread that a different kind of conversation was waiting. It was actually a difficult conversation, for the weaving loom did not try to please her, never made things easy for her, but rather reflected every distraction, every stupidity immediately. Kor would have stopped in frustration, but there was nothing else to do and nowhere else to go. So for the first time in her life, she persisted in something quite upsetting and painful. And so the days became weeks, and the weeks became months, and Kor started to realize that she was falling in love with this difficult weaving. It was not because she had mastered the loom and stopped making errors, because every time she mastered one technique, it opened the door to a hundred more ways to do things, a hundred more things to try, and therefore a hundred more ways to fail. Yet, strangely, she had come to enjoy the demanding honesty of this new friend, now really her only friend, the weaving loom. She found it as invigorating as the icy cold spring water in which she now had to bathe every morning. So there she was, contemplating the strange fact that she had fallen in love with this very thing that caused her daily frustration and made her feel very stupid. When out of the shadows, she suddenly heard a voice. Now, Cora had long since noticed that she was not entirely alone in her pursuit of the weaving arts in that cave. She had been inspired by watching her equally persistent sisters, the spiders who wove their own daily cloth on the ceiling and in the corners of the cavern. So just as Cora paused to review her work on a new and particularly advanced piece of tapestry, one of those spiders suddenly spoke to her. Well, you're coming along, said the spider. Well, thank you very much, Kor said respectfully, before she'd even had a chance to consider how strange it was to be talked to by a cave spider with whom she'd silently shared a home already for the last several months. You've gotten pretty good, repeated the spider. But not even your own gifted mother was good enough to alter the threads of your greater tapestry. Kor didn't know how to respond to that. 
Finally, she replied, I, I weave because I enjoy it. I like that answer, said the spider, because I enjoy it quite a bit myself. You know, we're cousins, or I'm your aunt, or, or great aunt, once removed, or, or something even more complex than that. In any case, I am definitely not a spider. You can call me Athena, and I took this form just so I could teach you how to weave, as I have now done. You're welcome. Oh, I have I've heard much about you, exclaimed Kor. I have heard that you were the mistress of all crafts and the most learned of all the goddesses. Perhaps so, said Athena. In any case, I must leave you now. But you should know that the time of your apprenticeship is over and the time of your womanhood has begun. So remember everything I have shown you, for only very nimble hands and a very open mind could bind together the wild threads of your crazy life. And with that, the spider who was not a spider disappeared into a crack in the rocks, leaving Kor alone once more. And yet, she was somehow less alone than before, for while the future remained an uncertain shadow, she had somewhere in those months in the cave become a woman whose hands were capable of dancing along a web of their own making, spinning and weaving just like her mother before her. This brings us to a close of the first part of the myth of Zagreus, which is a tale of the goddesses, especially the goddesses of the fertile earth, Deo the mother, and Kor the maiden. This telling will continue next week with part two of the myth of Zagreus. For now, I will leave you with one more meditation for your week ahead. Kor only really begins to master her craft after she has hit rock bottom and can no longer depend on her mother or anyone to weave for her. So how do we know when someone is ready for this kind of difficult and lonely initiation? Perhaps more importantly, when we find ourselves in this kind of initiatory cave, how can we recognize it as an opportunity for learning instead of getting lost in our fear and pain? Do you think that knowing Kor's tale, as I've related it today, might help you to find that growth perspective the next time that life kicks you out of your own comfortable nest and into some cold cave. And Kor's story will continue in next week's episode. This has been The Depth Charge with psychologist Julian D. Michaels. This is a new podcast and you can help us to continue this project by giving a great rating and sharing these episodes with others who might enjoy and benefit. This is and will always be a free offering made out of love and passion, but if you have the ability to donate, we gratefully receive support at patreon.com slash waketheimagination. Membership comes with additional content, including a series of embodied meditations for personal transformation, 
brought by Dr. Julian D. Michaels. And furthermore, anyone can access the first of these guided meditations for free simply by signing up for the email list at waketheimagination.com and directly receiving the link in your inbox. Until then, until next time, may the best of your dreams continue to reveal themselves and have a blessedly enchanted week.